Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party and for the first time in a very long time this is a brand new episode. Yes, new episodes are back and today's guest is Lee Anderson, the former deputy chair of the Tory party and the Tory MP for Ashfield. More on Lee in a sec Um, but oh man, so good to be back recording these. I just feel almost overstimulated by it. It's so good to be interviewing politicians again and Lee was a great guest Um, and as I say we'll get into that in a minute but thanks for your messages about the replay series and all of you have got in touch to wish me well since coming out of hospital. Um, Can't wait to record some live episodes. That may still be a bit of a way off and I'm sorry for um, the last few months of my tour that have been uh, delayed, postponed until later in the year. Um, because um, uh, I can't stand unaided at the moment um, for any meaningful amount of time and I can't walk without sticks. So even though I'm I'm improving and um, doing all sorts of things to improve my walking um, technique... Went on an anti-gravity treadmill the other week. So, as well as, obviously, I'm very keen for my body to return to normal as possible. A lot of the process of it is actually quite cool. Um, But maybe that's a conversation. That is definitely a conversation for another day. You don't sit here and just hear someone babble on about their health. Um, But anyway, yes, um, live shows will return and and the tour will happen. Uh, I just need to, um, firstly, be able to stand unaided and, and walk without sticks, but um, I am making progress. I feel like a politician already. You know, we're making progress. We're, we're, uh, we're on time and under budget. Um, but I, there's a couple of other things that I need to sort out as well. Uh, as you may imagine, as a result of major surgery, there's still some stuff going on. So um, they will return, um, but it's just so good to be recording these ones. And today's guest is Lee Anderson. Um, some may know him as 30p Lee, some know him as uh, the Tory's secret weapon, certainly in red wall areas, but maybe beyond that. And um, he's from North Nottinghamshire. It's a part of the country that I know well, obviously. I'm from Nottingham, but I used to work for the MP for Sherwood, Paddy Tipping, which is in North Notts. If you know this part of the world, uh, I'm telling you stuff you already know, but just for context, if you don't, specific politics in those areas, these are often huge estates in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of beautiful countryside. Um, and we talk about the coal mining industry and, and what, what the closure of the pits did to those areas. Uh, and Lee himself was a coal miner. He's a fascinating bloke, was a coal miner for years, then worked in Citizens Advice, then became a Labour councillor uh, and worked for the local Labour MP. And then just a few years later, isn't just a member of the Tory party, he's a Tory MP and he talks about that and how that all happened and whether his politics have changed. Um, and his own brush with health. Um, I say own brush with health, his own brush with uh, severe ill health. He was um, diagnosed with testicular cancer when he was 36. We talk about that and how he felt. And um, he is a fascinating bloke. We talk about Forrest as well, by the way, which I couldn't have the first one back and not uh, have a mention of Forrest. Um, So there is a little bit of that. (laughs) So hopefully for you non-football fans and non-Forest fans, you can forgive me that. Um, we talk about the by-elections a little bit, by the way, but it, it, it was more, I'm just so interested in Lee and, and uh, how he's ended up where he's ended up and um, 
and his personality and the way he does politics and uh, and it's just he he's a fantastic person to talk to um and this is this is immersive right from the word go so no more prattle from me uh, this is a brand new episode of the political party with lee anderson Delighted to be joined by Lee Anderson. Uh, Lee, I've, I've been desperate to interview you for a long time, mainly because you don't really get many people in the House of Commons, not just with Nottinghamshire accents, but specifically with a, with a North Nottinghamshire accent like yours. Are you the only person, do you think, with that sort of Mansfield accent in the Commons? Um, I think I probably am, because after about a month of being in in Westminster I'd actually got ministers walking past me in the uh, in the um they call the corridors of power um uh, saying hey up me duck how are you so um so I think probably once I got there uh, it was probably the first time anybody had been called duck and I did put it in my maiden speech as well and I made a sort of promise to myself Matt, that when I got there I wouldn't alter the way I speak I probably have a little bit because sometimes when you're public speaking in the chamber People struggle to understand. And when I'm doing stuff like this as well, this, this by the way, is my posh voice. Um, and I can soon slip into the vernacular when I'm back out on the streets of Asheville. But I do realise now that uh, when I'm speaking, I have to make myself understandable. I'm not down the pit anymore. I'm not in the pub on a Saturday night. Uh, people have got to understand what I'm saying. But, no, I'm incredibly proud of, of where I'm from and how we talk around here. And, um, and sometimes I do have to translate words to people in, in Westminster, what does that mean? Or, you know, like if I say, if I say I'm going for some snap, snap, here is food. Uh, you know, and there's just little words like that which which people don't don't get. But once you explain it to them, it's, uh, it, it, it raises a smile. But that's, I suppose, every area is different, to be honest. You've come a long way, obviously, from being a coal miner to being uh, an MP. And, and Yeah, it's about 147 miles. <laughs> well, you know what? You've hit upon something there, because I think you've got a very dry North Nottinghamshire sense of humour. And I, I genuinely think a lot of people in Parliament and in the media or wherever, I think a lot of people don't get that sort of dry sense of humour that you have. Well, they don't. And sometimes it can get you in a spot of bother as well. Um, you know, for, I mean, uh, as you say, I mean, when I left school, I went down the pit, and the, uh, the it's sort of a dark humour. And I guess if somehow you know a, a, a coal mining industry was traditionally working class, unionised, close shop union, and mostly labour supporting, but I suppose if you could have taped some of the conversations the coal miners had underground, the language. Um, and played it to a Labour Party meeting, to uh, a momentum meeting, or whatever you want to, then they would have been horrified at some of the language. But this was language that was left underground. It's like when I had a conversation with a journalist just a few weeks back about language uh, that's classed as misogyny, you know, if men are talking about women in a particular way. And I said, well, hold on a minute, you know, men when in a pub together in private in a, in, in a corner, we'll talk about if they see an attractive woman, they may say something that's inappropriate. They wouldn't go home and say that to the family or say it in the workplace, but they say it then, you know, uh, in an office space. Uh, but men talk like that. Women talk like that as well. Let's not pretend that any of us don't talk inappropriately in, in certain circumstances, because to do so is absolute nonsense. And we have to be very careful with our language, I understand that. We live in a, in a changing world, and some of the language I used to use down the pit 
Um, I couldn't use it in Parliament. Absolutely not. And uh, I wouldn't... I mean, I, I give you a perfect example, Matt. I, I never heard my dad swear or say the F word until I started down the pit. I worked with my dad underground. And when the first time I heard him say the F word, drop the F bomb, I was shocked. Absolutely shocked. I asked my dad. I've never heard him swear before. Um, obviously, I'd been swearing from about five years old, but I would never do it at home. And he, he just didn't, he didn't think he, his parents swore. But in the workplace, they did. They use a different language, a different tone. Uh, I talk about different things which you would never talk about, about you know, around the dinner table at home with your mum, your dad, your sisters and whatever. So, yeah, um, different language. It is an abrupt sort of language you use up here. And that's because of our background, of the industry we worked in, very tough job. And and I, I would imagine it's like being in, in the army or something like that. Sometimes difficult circumstances bring out a different sort of humour, banter in people to get you through the day. It's as simple as that. We'll come on to in, in a minute the amazing sort of career journey that you've had. But being a coal miner, you know, the vast majority of us will never do it. What is it actually like down there? Um. So the last job I had down there, uh, at, uh, I mean, started off at Sutton Colliery in Ashfield, then I went to work at Welbeck Colliery where I finished. It is, to explain it, red hot. I mean, where we, we worked in the headings, which uh, we worked in the coal phase, and then in the development, which is headings, which is basically tunnelling. You're tunnelling new workings out. And where I worked, it was always 100 degrees. Well, that's the middle of winter. Imagine, Matt, when you, when you go down the shaft, you go down the shaft, a thousand meters, and then once you get to the pit bottom, you might go five, six, seven mile in. That takes an age to get there. Imagine being seven mile away from from the shaft bottom. And when you get there, uh, the heat is incredible. We used to take gallons of water down, salt tablets. Sometimes you were working up to your waist in water, and it wasn't just fresh water; it was proper acidy water that burnt you. So you had to put loads of barrier cream on. Um, you were, for, you know, we were working twelve-hour shifts on night, sometimes fourteen-hour shifts, seven days. You could go three or four weeks without seeing any sunlight in the winter. It was, um, I couldn't put weight on um, because the the work was so physical. I was about twelve and a half stone uh, when I worked down the pit. Now I'm sixteen stone. Uh, I am what they call in Ashfield a fat bastard. Um, that's that, that's the technical term or the, the medical term could be the medical term actually, yeah. Uh, so, when, but working on the ground, I couldn't put weight on. I could go out and have a, a you know, a, a curry at my local Indian and have three courses, have about eight or nine pints and be as thin as a rake. I can't do that now. I just look at a onion board, yeah, I've put, put off a stone on. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like a horrendous working environment. I mean, obviously, the, the long-term health effects of, of being a coal miner are, um, are well-documented, things like vibration white finger and COPD and stuff like that. Have you suffered any long-term health problems as a result. Yeah, I mean, the I mean the right thing. I mean, we sort of suspected this years before any claims went in because because we were using um, we were using new, like like pneumatic drills, but the big machines, big boring machines. When we were uh, um, when we would we used to have to dig these manholes out, these 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 like little like, like a doorway in the coal where you would it's it's a refuge where you would jump in if a, if a vehicle vehicle came by somewhere where you'd be safe and. And the boring machines we used to use, the, the roof bolting machines, we were, you know, we were on them eight or nine hours a shift, vibrating all the time. And you used to come and come away and you think and you'd still be shaking, you know, walking, walking back to the pit bottom. So we sort of knew that. But the, I think for me, the dust was the worst one. It was the um and we had lots of measures in place to suppress the dust. 
Like we had, we had lots of every every machine had water and had water sprays and stuff like that. But you know, I know sadly, um, I know a man that died from pneumoconiosis. Uh, it was one of the chaps he used to work with. I think he was only in his fifties. But it affects people in different ways. I mean, I was a heavy smoker when I worked down the pit. Um, I also used to chew tobacco. We thought that's what miners did. They chewed tobacco, chewing tobacco, you know, and spit it out like that, like in the old Western films. And we used to take snuff. So before I went down the pit, I'd have a fag. I'd go down the pit and we'd be gobbling all that dust in, and it is very dusty underground. And then whilst you're gobbling this dust in, you'd be having a chew of tobacco. And every every half an hour, you'd have a pinch of snuff, you'd have that little tobacco eye, and um, that was part of the like a tradition worker working that pit. You got get tin out, youth. So you get your tin out and you give everybody a pinch and like that, you know, uh, get back out, youth, and uh, that sort of, that sort of thing. That's what it was like. You must have coughed up. I mean, your pillars must have been jet black in the morning. Yes, they were. They were. I mean, I remember even when. Say we broke up for a fortnight and went on holiday, he'd still be being disgusting, like gobbing up black phlegm. You know, you'd be coughing up and it'd be black stuff coming out, you know, a couple of days after you'd been in the pit. So, yeah, and in the morning, is you, you have, have them coughing fits where you're trying to get that last bit up. Uh, and that'd be a combination of smoking too much and, and coal dust. And is there any long-term psychological effects, do you think, of it, effectively working in such conditions, you know, in subterranean hot, dusty mm. work. No, I mean, all, all I've got um, is fond memories, to be honest. I mean, that, that sounds it sounds bizarre. I know it does, but, you know, I miss I miss that working environment. I don't, obviously, I don't miss getting up at half past four in the morning um, or going down, down the coal mine at 11 o'clock at night or six o'clock at night to do a 12-hour shift. But you miss that. It's a different environment, Matt. It's a different world where you... Where you some of the most intelligent, brightest men I ever met in my life were coal miners, and, and they, a lot of the old guys, could hardly read or write, and you know, struggle to write their own name. But they were so clever. So, because you have to do stuff down there with hardly any tools, sometimes something could happen, something could break, and and all of a sudden you've got to do something very, very quickly. And the ingenuity of some of these men was was unbelievable. They could do anything with the barest of tools, and these were men that maybe outside the industry would struggle to find a job that paid as much as that. Uh, but, you know, give them a pick, give them a shovel and give them a, a saw, a bow saw and a bit of timber and they could, they could work miracles. And when the pits closed, I mean, obviously, no, this is, this is written into, um, you know, the, the souls of the people who, who still live in those areas. As you know, I worked for Paddy Tippin, He used to be the Labour MP for Shield. And I would go to those former coal mining areas in North Knots and that you know you drive through beautiful miles of countryside and then there are just these estates in North Nottinghamshire and no. of course across Yorkshire that that were built around a centre of employment that are gone I mean no. the, the the emotional effect let alone the economic and social and, and all the rest of it of, of the pit closures it, it feels like the ramif those areas Ashfield Mansfield all those areas I don't know if you agree with this. It's still reeling, really, from the long-term effects of those of those pit closures. Well, they are. I mean, I mean, each week, Matt, I go somewhere different in the country and do a bit of afternoon speaking to Conservative Association. They like to hear the story of being a you know Labour voting coal miner to being a Tory MP. And one of the parts of my speeches, I talk about the coalfield areas and the fact that it wasn't just about producing coal. It was in, in a typical village like Hothwaite, where I'm from, is 
3,000 people live there. You'd have a coal mine. You'd have a factory. You'd have a few shops. You'd have two schools, doctor's surgeries, a few pubs. And with the coal mine, with every coal mine came a football team, a rugby team, a cricket team. We had a sports and welfare ground, the tennis courts, bowling green, putting green. We had a bandstand. The collar had its own brass band. And we also, you know, we had we had a miners' welfare where you could go and play snooker, play darts. You could watch a group of the weekend, play bingo. And that was your whole world. And once a year, you might go to Blackpool on the bus with all the village or might go to Skegness with all the village. And um, that was community. So when the pits did close, start to close in, or in mass, should I say, in the because they, they were closing all the time anyway. But when they were, when it was the last pit in the village closing, not only did the coal mine go, the football team went, the rugby team went, the cricket team went, the balls team went, the the people started stopped going to the social club, the the, uh, the miners' welfare. People stopped seeing each other overnight. They, you know, no longer would. As a kid, would I sit at the dinner table with mum and dad at night time and listen to my dad talk about his day his day at work or his day down the pit? Um, I didn't hear that, you know. And um, like I say, there was a factory in every village, most villages, and all the women worked there. So all the men worked at the pits uh, and all the men worked in, in the villages, and it, and it was simple as that. And so when the pits went, obviously communities were sort of, they went as well. People stopped talking to each other. People stopped socialising with each other. And I don't think we've ever really got over that. Uh, nothing's replaced that. Um, I think the nearest thing to replace that is probably Facebook. I'm honest. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's probably the only way communities talk to each yeah. other now is by having a community page where they all say, oh, have you seen that weirdo walking down the street there? He looks a bit dodgy. And that's, you know, back in the day, you'd have just reported that to your neighbours, wouldn't you? People say uh, that's the local MP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who is he? <laughs> But how do you go from, I mean, I totally understand. I mean, some people find it really odd that you can go from being a, a Labour-supporting coal miner to a Tory MP. I don't find it that odd, and I don't think your politics have necessarily changed. But what must have changed for you is, I imagine you were angry at the Thatcher government for the closure of the pits and for not yeah. replacing it. So then how yeah. do you now rub along with people who, for whom Margaret Thatcher's their biggest hero? Well, um, well, there's... There's a couple of stories I tell on my, on my travels about my um, the time I forgave Maggie. And we got to admit, we despised her with a passion. We did. We, th we blamed her because, you know, remember my, me as a 16-year-old, I would go to Chesterfield Town Hall and speak. And uh, I can remember one particular occasion. It was Skinner, Scargill and Tony Benn all on the same bill. Imagine that as a 16-year-old. Amazing. You go into Chesterfield Town Hall and listen to these men speak. And, and by the way, the best speaker was Arthur Scargill by a million miles. Tony Benn was brilliant. Skinner was brilliant. But Arthur Scargill, he, he got you there from from minute one to the end. And then you'd go out of that room as a 16-year-old. you want to get a Kalashnikov rifle. You'd want to start a revolution. You'd want to get rid of all the nasty Tories. And who was in charge of nasty Tories? It was Maggie Thatcher. We thought these people were the solution. But they weren't. They were the problem. Because we were useful idiots. We were. That's all we were. And... Um, but the Mamaro to Damascus moment was in 2017, campaigning for Gloria in Ashfield. We're speaking to this old chap. She was speaking to an old chap in the in the uh, on Portland Square in Sutton, and he was probably about 80. She went to speak to him to ask him which way he voted, and he wouldn't tell her. She came back with a little notepad, and she says, "He not tell me. Go and have a word with him, Lee, because he's the next coal miner like you." So I went and sat with him. 
And he said, look, he says, I vote Conservative. He says, I have done for the last 40 years. I said, well, well why? Why do you vote Conservative? You're an ex-coal miner, worked that pit 40-odd years, coal mining area, massive Labour majority. And so I'll tell you why. He says, because in the early 80s, he says, I'm working at Sutton Colliery, same pit as me. Um, his missus worked at the factory, same factory as my mum and my sisters. He says, and my two daughters were going to Ashfield Comprehensive, which is the same school I went to. And he says... We lived in the council house on Corsic. He says, and I just thought to myself, what's life all about? I've got a job I don't like. My missus don't like her job. My kids go to a school. They probably end up in the factory. He says, and to round it all off, I live in the, in the, in the council house, which I'll never own, and I'll, I'll never have any money. I thought, what's life all about? He said, I felt worthless as a human being. I thought, well, that's incredibly sad for a, for a man, a big, tough coal miner to, to feel worthless. He says, and then Maggie came along, who we hated with a passion, and said to me, you're a good man, you've got a good family, good work ethic. Um, what I'm going to do is let you buy a council house uh, for a massive discount. He said, so I did. He said, I, I put the hours in at work, did seven days. My missus put the overtime, we saved up. And we uh, managed to get a deposit and bought a house. He says, now 40-odd years on, he says, um, he said, I can sit on my settee, look out my patio windows, which, by the way, is dead proud of, because he'd pay for them patio windows to have in. Look at my green house with my tomatoes in. Look at my little shed, which I've just creosoted. Look at my pond, my fence, and my lawn, which I've just cut. And he says, and I can let my set here and think to myself, that's all mine now. That's all mine and the missus's. And, it's, and, and that was beyond most people's wildest dreams back in the 80s, back because only 10% of people in Ashfield own their own home. And what Maggie had done for this man, she had allowed him to have a stake in society, a financial stake in society. And then he went on to say to me that, you know, when, I, he said, when I'm on my deathbed, I can have a little smile to myself because I'll know my life has not been worthless. So I've got something to leave to my children and my grandchildren. And that was all made possible because of Maggie Thatcher. Without her, I'd have died penniless. And I thought to myself, wow, that's the most powerful political story I've ever heard in my life. And I can understand now why that man has gave his vote to the Conservative Party for all those years because of one simple reason. She made him feel like his life had been made worthwhile. So I went back to Gloria. I said, you can put your notepad away, voting Conservative, and I don't blame him. And that was it. <laughs> that was my road to Damascus moment. But a year later, I was in a, um, as a Labour councillor, I was in a Labour group meeting with uh, the Momentum mob, because they run Ashford District Council, the lunatics. I, I mean, these are the lunatics. These are the people that, when Fidel Castro died, they wanted to open a book of condolence at the local council office. This is the sort of mentality that we're talking about. And uh, one of them said in his wisdom, not a million miles from uh, Barry Tippin's office, said, uh, Oi, Anderson, have you, have you ever read the works of Karl Marx? Well, it was about 30 Labour Group uh, members in there. It went deathly quiet. And I just stood up and I said, I tell you what, you, no, I haven't. And he said, well, why don't you off then and join the Tory party? This is in 2018. I said, you know what, mate, that's not a bad idea. So I left. I joined the Conservative Party that week. And then a year later, I was that man's MP. I mean, that, that is like a, a whirlwind of a, of a political... Yeah, it's, yeah, it but it's a whirlwind. Th but there must have been things before then that, that were maybe pushing you away from Labour a little bit. I mean, in Tony, when Tony Blair was leader then, and, and Gloria's a... Um, when Tony Blair's Prime Minister and Gloria's the MP for Ashfield, and you're working for no, Gloria... No, she wasn't. She wasn't the MP for Ashfield. She was the MP for Ashfield when Gordon Brown was in charge. Sorry, you're absolutely right. But, but during the last Labour government, when those people are in charge, you, you know, the Blairites, the Brownites or whatever, yeah. broadly, were you sort of fine with 
the Labour well, I, was, I was a member. I was a member of the party, but I never got involved in the campaign. I just paid my subs. It, was, it wasn't until I went to work for Gloria in 2012, I think it was, that I actually saw, for me, realise what the Labour Party was. When you, know, when, you talk, when, they, when you go into Labour group meetings and they're talking about Palestine, and I'm thinking, hold on a minute, I, I want to talk about deprivation in Ashfield. I want to talk about lack of housing, the lack of opportunities for young people, about apprenticeships, about you know, build more council houses. That's, that's what I wanted to get involved in politics for, to, to make my area better. Because before, prior to that, Mark, I'd worked for Sitton's Advice Bureau for 10 years nearly. So I'd seen all the social problems we've got and I've been dealing with those on a daily basis. And I thought an extension of that would be getting involved with the Labour Party, working for a Labour MP, of really getting you know stuck into these social problems, they weren't interested in that. Because some people, you know, I think a lot of the commentary around you, people seem to perceive you as a as a mean spirited person, whereas actually you've, <laughs> you know, so much of your life has been dedicated to public service. Now maybe it's the way that you, um, you know, that maybe some of the language you choose or your sense of humour that yeah. people don't get, or maybe you know you are very right wing and that's just where you are. But, but I always think you can't. You know, you are someone who's dedicated his life to public service since having a, a working-class job, 10 years as citizen's advice, on the no. local council, through parliament. So what do you say to those people? Do, does it bother you, do you think, that, you know, in, in some quarters perhaps you're seen as like a, a bogeyman of the right? No, no, it doesn't bother me at all because I always, put, I always give them a challenge. You know, when, you know, when I got attacked by that, who's that? In, um, I think it was Nick Robinson who did a podcast with him about my comments on food bank users, you know, nurses and uh, using food banks. And I said, well, let me just correct you. What the actual thing I said was, nobody earning over £35,000 should be using a food bank in this country. Stick by those words. And if they are, whether they're a nurse or a fireman or a policeman or any public sector worker, and they're earning 35 k and using food banks, get them to come and see me, and I will go through their finances and prove that they can actually live comfortably without going to a food bank. As yet, Matt, I've thrown this challenge out to the Labour Party. Anybody who will listen... I've not had one person come to me uh, to accept this challenge because nobody earning that sort of money, regardless of where you live in the country, should be using a food bank. I've worked with food banks. And when I worked at the CAB under a Labour government, people were using food banks. People don't like to talk about this, but when they came to the CAB for a food parcel, what we had to do, we had to go through their income and expenditure and see how much money they got coming in, how much they got going out, and then if they were spending money on Sky TV and fags and beer and going on holiday and phone contracts, as a CAB advisor, we had to say to these people, stop it. These aren't essential items. Essential items are your rent, your mortgage, your food, your electric bill, your gas bill, and your council tax. These are priority debts that you must pay. All this, you need to stop this nonsense and concentrate on feeding your family. Now, I'm saying that as a, as a CAB advisor, that's fine. You know, five, six, ten years later, I'm saying it as a Tory MP, you're a nasty bastard. Do you feel misunderstood? Different, eh? Well, I guess it's I guess it's the rosette, isn't it? it, it do, yeah. do you feel a bit misunderstood? Exactly that, yeah, it's exactly that. I mean, when I when I made the comments about food banks in the Commons about the 30p lease stuff, basically we batch cooked 172 meals, 50 quid. It worked out at 30 pence a portion. You know, I did this with a food bank. It was a, a food bank project. I was just jumping on on board with it. And we were teaching people how to cook and how to budget. And when I got all this nonsense in the press and, and the Labour Party attacked me in Parliament, I wrote to every single Labour MP. I said, come to my food bank and we'll do one of these cooking sessions and we'll batch cook meals and show you how to feed, create or uh, prepare nutritious meals on a budget 
and then we'll deliver them to vulnerable people around Ashfield. Not one single Labour MP accepted the challenge. Do you, you do you feel like you know you're reflecting on like your own politics and and and, and the life that you've lived? Do you feel like in a way you were always a conservative, but you, you didn't think of it like that? Or yes. do you feel and, and, that your yeah, politics shifted yeah. at any point? Well, I, again, I can I can open back to my own past working in the coal mine. What we had down the coal mine, and in our village, Matt, as um, working underground, I thought when I started the pit, I was going to be working with some Marxist revolutionaries who wanted to go on strike every 10 minutes and bring the government down and string Maggie up. It wasn't like it was, it was opposite. These men were intelligent men. They were hardworking. They did an incredibly difficult job arduous job, dangerous job sometimes. They did it for just a few reasons. They wanted to put food on the table, pay, pay, pay the rent or the mortgage if they were looking enough to own their own house. They wanted to put good clothes on the kids' back. They wanted a decent hospital, a decent school. They loved Queen and Country. They they flew the flag. They sung the national anthem. They were aspirational. They wanted their kids to do better than them. They didn't want their kids down a coal mine. They wanted their kids to go to grammar school. They did. They wanted their kids to go to university. They wanted their kids to have a better job. These are all conservative values, small c conservative values, but they all voted Labour. And the reason they voted Labour is because we're in the clothes shop industry where you had to join a union and you could only join the union for that industry. And every union, whether it be the National Union of Mine Workers, Steel Workers, Railway Workers, whatever, they were closed shop. So you had to join them. You could not not join a union. So you paid to the union and then every week a few pence out of that subs went to the Labour Party. So we all had a financial stake in the Labour Party. Hence, we all vote to Labour. And how do you feel, particularly about the last Labour government and and and, and their record in areas like Ashfield? Uh, you know, I remember the Coalfield Regeneration Trust, the amount of money that was given to coal miners, payouts for things like COPD and Vibration White Finger that we talked about earlier. Was there, there must have been some stuff that Blair and Brown did that you thought was positive. No, nothing. Absolutely nothing. The, the only benefit we had, I think, in Ashfield, they... Um, they um, they gave us money and the Labour Council built an outdoor sundial in Ashfield, right? They, they they bill it as the largest outdoor sundial in Europe. Now, tell me where you can find an indoor sundial. I don't know. It wants chucking on the scrappy. Um, and then we got some money from the European Union regeneration stuff for a, a plaza in Kirkby, which basically should be turned into a car park. Nobody ever uses it. So, But since I got elected, two new school rebuilds, um, we've got that's that's going to be over 100 million quid. My old school, Ashford and Kirby College, and uh, you know, we've got about 100 million in leveling up money through Towns Fund, leveling up money and, and future high streets fund. This area has never had that sort of investment before. Spades are in the ground at the moment, and things are happening. We've never had that. And I always say that the one thing in common that the Red Wall seats had Matt, uh, prior to 2019 is they all had failing high streets, full of deprivation, they've always had a Labour MP. And they've always had Labour councils. Uh, what a shocking record that is for, for the Labour Party. They make a living out of keeping people poor. That's what they do. Socialism is not about spreading wealth. It's about spreading poverty. That's what they do. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What about, I mean, you'll have encountered them, some very well-meaning people in the Labour Party, genuinely animated as you were about uh, improving the lives of people. And when you think about things like the minimum wage and sure start and tax credits and and uh, investment into local schools and hospitals. You would have looked around Ashfield in the years 1997 to 2010 and seen that improvement in people's... Well, the improvement was... In education. It, I mean, the hospital's a good one. Um, Kingsmill Hospital, literally two miles away from me. It's where I was born. It's where my kids were born. Uh, saved my life, saved my dad's life. And that was rebuilt by Blair and Brown on a PFI deal. Should have cost... 250, 300 million, maybe, to, to rebuild that hospital. It's now going to cost us on this PFI deal, the worst PFI ever, two and a half, three billion quid. It costs us £140,000 a day or a million pounds a week just to pay that. It is, in fact, a private hospital at the moment. It's cost an absolute fortune to pay off. So when the Labour Party bang on about, you know, investing more money in our national health service, I say, hold on a minute, you've just spent three billion quid on a £300 million hospital. Don't make me laugh. And thinking about Ashfield and other areas like that, how do how do these red wall seats feel about Rishi Sunak? Do you think it's it's a mixed bag? You see, in two thousand nineteen, we had three things that won us the election. I mean, a lot of, a lot of these so called political academics will say, "Oh, it's always the economy that wins you." That's nonsense, absolute nonsense. Um, the economy did not win us an 80-seat majority in 2019. It was three things. It was Boris, it was Brexit, it was Corbyn. It was simple as that. Corbyn's gone. Um, he's rattling about making jammies in allotment somewhere and uh, getting on people's nerves. Um, Boris has gone. Um, and, and Brexit is no longer an issue, really. So it's, there has to be a, a different battle this time. Now, now, Rishi, and I've said this many times, and been misquoted on it, as I, as I usually am. He doesn't possess, well, no politician possesses that sort of charisma uh, that, that Boris does. That, that's that's rare. I think Boris has got it, maybe Farage has got it, Trump's got it, maybe Blair had it. Uh, these are politicians that come along every so often who have just got loads and loads of... Sorry about this, Matt. Really phone. It's all right. I'll turn it on. These are politicians that come along every once in a while. They've got bags of charisma, and they cut through. They passed the pint test. Would you go and have a pint with Boris in, in the new cross up here? Yes, you probably would. There's some politicians. Would you go and have a pint with Keir Starmer? Well, you'd probably be asleep after you just took head off, to be honest. You'd, you'd probably nod off because he's boring. Um, and he is. Um, so people want to be excited. Rishi doesn't have the charisma uh, of Boris, but he has... Is, is more detailed. Now, I've sat in meetings with both, so I know that when, when you're going to meet Rishi, he knows his brief 100%. Absolutely smashes it. You can't pull him up on anything. You can't catch him out. He's read everything. He's prepared. And he runs the country like he, he would run a business. Um, and I think that's the way a country should be run sometimes. Uh, well, all the time. Whereas Boris was all about, you know, everybody's on board. Um, and I think Boris could have been a great leader of this country, but the things happened to him it, uh, with Partygate. Uh, I think sometimes he was a little bit stitched up with, with certain things. And I think he took the eye off the ball. Uh, because in this game, 
people are out to get you all the time, Mike. You're out to get me, you know, mild-mannered, um, meek, um, non-opinionated people like myself. I've got my enemies. Yeah, I know you're finding that hard to believe right now, but it's well, true. I, I, I sometimes see them online, particularly... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking of Steve Bray, uh, the people who know him as the Stop Brexit man. V periodically, photos of you two. Well, he sort of waits for you outside Parliament, and you have a bit of a yeah. tete a tete. You two seem to entertain each other. It seems to be quite a light-hearted rivalry it, that you've got. It did on my part. I mean, it does get a little bit nasty sometimes. I mean, he, um, I asked him to go on my GME News show. I asked him to come on. And he says, well, he says, I'll come on. He says, but I do command a fee. I says, well, I know what your fee is, Steve. It's about four cans of Stella. Um, because, it, it, yeah, that's his fee. Um, but he always seems to be a little bit inebriated, uh, a little bit red-faced, and uh, is never is never more than 200 yards away from the Red Lion. So um, so you can make your own mind up. But, yeah, it, it's light-hearted on my part. But it... it is a, is a tourist attraction, Matt. Is a is a bit of a freak show. You see them all in that central reservation outside Parliament. Looks a bit like Fraggle Rock. You ever used to watch that? There's a load of like Muppets there, all sat there with you know long hair and hairy legs and, and mustaches. So uh, and Jesus sandals. Uh, I don't know why why they're not at work. Well, I do know why they're not at work. It's because they're bone idle. Yeah. But do you? I mean, there's an eccentricity, isn't there? Particularly in this country, and I was watching footage this morning of, of last night's by-election results, and you see the monster raving loony guy there, and you, you kind of, <laughs> there's part, as much as periodically, you know, everyone gets frustrated by it, it is quite funny that we live in a country where as long as it's not dangerous and it's not harassment, people yeah. can wait outside and heckle you a bit. You seem to handle it pretty well. Yeah, well, as long as they don't, yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's part of the job, isn't it? You know, you can't walk anywhere now. I'm, I mean, I've been walking around Nashville today, for example, I've been walking around Nashville today and lots of people come up, shake your hands, Lee, can you do this, can you do that, you're doing a great job. We think you're brilliant, blah, blah, blah. But then when you go down London, it's a different crowd. It's 30p Lee, it's wanker, it's, it's uh, yeah, we're twat and all this sort of uh, language and, and that's just from other MPs. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah. no. laughs> That's a joke, disclaimer. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you, you get that. But I, I do get a good reception, actually, in London from the cab drivers. They all seem to know me because I'm on GB News, and uh, they always love chatting to me. Um, I guess that, I mean, for me, the cab drivers, they give me so much information on what's happening in the capital. Uh, not big fans of, of car now. It's affecting their livelihood and, and tourism and stuff like that. But, yeah, as long as it's, it's banter... And it's fine. I can give as good as a take. Sometimes people do try and cross the line and, you know, come up to your face and, and have a go. Um, that's not acceptable. And do you feel MPs are adequately protected? No, I don't. But probably, you know, I think that, that we have to be accessible to the public, Matt. I mean, I've been out and about this morning walking around town. It has to be like that. It has to be that, you know, when I'm in my shopping centre in Sutton, I can't walk more than five yards without being stopped. It has to be like that. It literally does. I don't want to get a big nine-foot gorilla stood outside of me, you know, protecting me. I want to be Lee, who, who lives in Ashfield, lived here all his life, who people know, that also happens to be the Member of Parliament as well. That's what I want to be. You mentioned Kingsmill Hospital a couple of times, Lee. It, it's, a, it's a hospital I know well from the area, but and you mentioned it saving your life and your dad's life. At 36, you discovered you had testicular cancer, which obviously is a very young age hmm. to get that. Without sounding flippant about it, do you remember much about the moment you were told? Yeah. Um, 
initially I've been to the doctors and the GPs and I knew, obviously you know something's wrong. And um, it was a locum. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, it's just, it's swelling. I said, well, tell me about it. Um, yeah, it was like, like a coconut. And um, so I said, no, there's something wrong here. So um, so he said, okay, then, if you're going to be like that, you can have a second opinion. So I had a second opinion. Get to, get to King's Mill and get it scanned. So I went to King's Mill, did one of those ultrasound scans, and I remember the doctor saying to me, you best go and get your pyjamas. This is coming off it morning. Uh, and that was a moment. And it was basically that sort of language. Uh, so I thought, oh, God. It says, yeah, this is it's cancer. It's, it's an aggressive form. Um, so I went home. Um, I got. To, I was living with my two boys at the time, so I had to do, um, get my parents to look after kids. I was a single parent. And um, I went back to that night, and um, funny story, true story, came around the, the surgeon did. He said, right, what I want you to do, Mr. Anderson? He says, you're first in the morning. I want you to have a shower tonight and a shave and get ready for the for the morning. So I thought, yeah, that's fair enough. So I went and had a shower and a shave and swapped myself up. And they come the following morning and inspected me and says, well, you've not had a shave. I said, oh, yeah, I've looked. I thought, look. And it says, no, we didn't mean there. We went <laughs> down there. All right, okay. So uh, I had to have a quick shave and um, went in and the uh, – whipped it off and there you go but the, the I mean, there's a twist to this story because then i went to city hospital at nottingham for a scan after the operation about a week because i was due to start some chemo and um when i got in there the this this consultant says um we think you've got secondary um cancer on, on your lungs um uh, we found some nodules on your lungs i thought oh god uh, and uh, my dad's with me uh, my dad says, well, don't worry, lad. If you die, we'll look after kids. I thought, well, that's comforting, Dad. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, so <laughs> so he says, what we're going to do now, he says, you probably need some stronger chemo for this. So I went home. And when I got home, my mother says, hospital's just wrong. You've got to ring them back. So I had to go back to hospital. And he says, the consultant says, did you used to work in that pit? I says, yeah, you know I did. It's on my records. I've told you about 10 times. They said, oh, that throws a different light on it. It could be it could be dust. It could be like scars on your lungs from working on the ground. He said, what we'll do is we'll just we'll we'll keep measuring them every couple of weeks. And they did. And actually it was, it was dust. It was just little tiny scar tissues on my lungs. Nothing, you know, really tiny. And it wasn't it wasn't cancer. So I had the scans for about it was about five years and got the all clear. But at the same time I got diagnosed. Two of my friends I used to work with, Roy and Mick, they both got, we all got cancer at the same time. And they, they both died within months. And and I, and I survived. And we, we was all heavy smokers as well. And the day I got diagnosed, I, I, just, I got some fags in my pocket. I threw them away. And, um, I mean, them, them pair carried on smoking because they were dying anyway. And I just threw mine away. And I've never had a, a, a fag since, to be honest. And uh, so it sort of scared me. Um yeah, there's sometimes in your life that when things like that happen, it scares you into doing stuff and probably alters the way you look at life as well. It makes you think, oh, life, you know, live every day like it's my last, go out and have a, a good time, make sure my kids are all right, go and earn some money because you never think it's going to happen to you, do you? It's that, no, it's that's that right. 
And yeah. I, I was never scared. I was never scared. And what what my worry was, I got how do you tell your kids? I mean, I told my kids I got I, I twisted my ankle. That's why I went limping when I come out. <laughs> I know I had to lie to them. <laughs> but when yeah. you're told that, it, it brings you. You know, you think about your own mortality very quickly. I mean, yeah. it, it, there must have been part of you that thought, I may well die soon. Yeah, though there's that. Uh, and the fact that when you, because I was on my own as well, you've got nobody to talk to, really. Uh, you know, you lie awake at night in bed on your own. You've got two kids in another bedroom, and you just think to yourself, well, what's going to happen, sort of thing. That's what you think. And you've got nobody to, to tap in the middle of the night and say, yeah, I want to talk about I mean, I probably want to talk about it anyway, but, or... I don't know, but you know, you've got nobody to talk to as such, and um, yeah. So that, I think that's that's the bit. That's the bit that worries you a little bit. And do you think is it too simplistic to say that without that, maybe you wouldn't have become an MP? Do you think, in a way, that gave you a bit of a drive to to do the things you've uh, in life? Maybe. Um, see, see, there's all these experiences in your life. You know, when you look at your your CV, if, if like your you, you CV in life, and you know, I think to myself, well, I was brought up on probably the roughest street in Ashfield, tick to box. Um, I worked down the pit, tick to box. I've worked in the concrete factory, labouring, that's tick to box. Um, I've worked at CAB for many years, helping vulnerable people, that's ticked another box. I've been a single parent, that's tick to box. I've been struggling on my own with no money, that's another box ticked. Um, you know, I've done all those all those things. Uh, been in every pub in Ashfield. That's ticked the box. I've been to football matches everywhere in the country. That's ticked on the. You know, real, these are might seem like small things, but the real things, which some of my colleagues, I guess, would probably be a little bit jealous of. Uh, you know, I've been a bit in the spot of bother when I was younger and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think, well, this is real. You know, when I'm in Parliament, I'm talking about NHS. I've been involved in NHS because of my illness and, and, you know, I was born at my local hospital when I'm getting the extra £2 million to extend the A&E. That's personal for me. When I'm getting Ashfield School rebuilt, real, 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 straight rebuilt at the cost of 70, 80 million quid, that's personal to me because I went there. You know, my kid, my, my oldest son went there. My sisters went there. This is this is personal stuff. So that they're sort of going to be my legacy, these sort of things. And and the reason I can do those things is because, and the reason I'm passionate about Ashfield is because... I've, you know, I've raised a family here. I've made all my mistakes here. I've made a good living here. All my family's here. All my friends are here. And uh, my CV stands up to anybody's. When you think about, you know, maybe the drive that it's given you and the attitude it's given you towards life, where does that take you next then? Because if these by-election results are anything to go by and if the polls and all the rest of it, and obviously we know that these things can change, let's say the Tories don't win the next election, and Rishi Sunak doesn't stay as leader. Is that something you'd fancy? What, leader of the party? Yeah. Absolutely not. Why not? Don't, be, don't talk nonsense. I'm just asking. Um, no, it's... it's. I mean, working down a coal mine's hard work. It's hard, physical, demanding, exhausting, dangerous work. I wouldn't imagine being the leader of a political party, especially being the PM or just a leader. The, the actual amount, even ministers, Matt, and, and shadow ministers, the amount of time it takes them to, to do the job. They're, they're at it 12, 14, 15 hours a day. I don't want to do that um, at all. I want to um, I want to concentrate on Ashfield, make sure I spend as much time here as possible. I can't wait to get home on a Thursday. And I want to have a bit of a life as well. I like my football. I'm a season ticket holder at Forest. 
I go there with my kids every I'll be there tomorrow cheering them on against West Ham I was there last week um, when, when that shocking referee decision cost us a penalty uh, in fact they talk about these um, financial fair play system robbing us of 10 points Vars robbed us of, of far more points than that uh, this season but I like that's the sort of I like to go out with mates and you know have a few drinks I go away with my mates for a weekend we go out for nights out you know and even now in, you know being in the, having a bit of a, a profile it's difficult sometimes like if I go to Skegness with my mates on, on a bit of a, a beer sesh I get recognised straight away so you've got to be on your best behaviour um, and went to Egypt a couple of years back um, and um, I thought well this is it I'm, I'm going to put my phone in the safe no emails, no WhatsApp, no politics. Nobody will know me. Walked into the first pub. Oi, RMP's here. Get beers in. Thought so, that's it. So, <laughs> so you can't go anywhere really. Even I went on a boat last year with my mates on the on the canals. I thought this is great. And even then, opening a lock up on a canal. Oh, is that Lee Anderson there? Thirty p Lee. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get it everywhere, mate. But politics is well populated with people who went to posh schools who come from, uh, you know, financially secure backgrounds, who have absolutely no doubt in their mind that they should be at the centre of government and at the top of it. Too many people, many people listening to this podcast would say, you're a working class person. Why shouldn't you put yourself at the absolute centre of things? Well, maybe if it had been 20 years late, uh, twenty years younger coming into this game, maybe I would have done that. But, I mean, I'm no spring chicken. Um, I'm getting on a bit. Um, and... I always said I'd do two terms if I was fortunate enough to win a second term. Uh, three to push. But there's probably other things I want to do, you know, um, do, do with my life. Um, see, I, feel, I feel incredibly privileged to do the job I've done because I'm the first ever MP in Asheville that was born here, that, that's lived here. That's, you know, and you know, one time a day, I know you're a sports fan, if you if you wanted to play cricket for Yorkshire, you had to be born in Yorkshire. And, and call me nostalgic, I think that, that's how it should be. I really do. I mean, look at the Celtic European Cup winning side, 1967. I think every single one of them players would live within 12 miles of, of the ground. Yeah. Even, um, I think it was maybe even a quarter of a mile. But it might, yeah, it might have been something daft like that. It was yeah. born within a, a, a ludicrously yeah. small radius yeah. of Celtic yeah. and, Park. And, and, that, and that's, that's me just being nostalgic and thinking how things should be. And I, I, I struggle to think why a local person can't be an MP in the area. I think there's something wrong when it's somebody that's from 100 miles away, um, because it, it should be a personal job. So are you thinking a bit about life after politics then, or certainly life after Westminster? Um, I've never been one of those sort of people that worried about losing my job or, or worried about my, my you know being made redundant. And because I always believe that, you know, when when something like that happens in your life, it creates opportunities. It gets you off your arse and makes you do something different. So I'm quite positive with stuff like that. I mean, if you said to me six years ago, you're going to be a Conservative MP, Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party, and have your own television show, I'd, I'd have just said, you just you need to go and get your sent checked out because you're either drinking too much, smoking some ridiculous form of weed, or you've uh, you've cracked up. Um, but that happened. I mean, that happened to me. So. This country of ours, I always, I always say, Matt, this country of ours is a gift to the world. This country gave the world railways, industrial revolution, sports, football, rugby, cricket, tennis, golf. You're giving it culture, giving it Shakespeare, giving it Dickens, giving it Byron, giving it Keats, giving it Wordsworth. 
It's given it architecture everywhere you go in the world. You can see the influence of, of our great country. It's given it the police force, given it democracy. Binge um, drinking. Binge drinking, Benidorm, and all sorts. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this country truly is a gift to the world, and we should be incredibly proud of our country, and I'm incredibly proud to be an Englishman and and uh, and British. Do you think that that sort of patriotism is partly what attracted you to the Tory party in the time yeah. in the time in which you've been there certainly as a contrast to the to the Corbyn era Labour party that that just didn't yeah. seem fashionable at all. Well, it didn't. I mean go back to conference I think 2017 and Labour conference when they were all waving the Palestinian flags. I mean really at a political conference you should be waving the union flag. As simple as that. It's it's a no-brainer. Uh why we can't do that? Why we sometimes keep apologising for our past, our history, our culture, our heritage, all those sorts of things, we should be celebrating them. Yes, we need, uh, you know, yes, all countries have done something wicked and horrible and, and cruel in the past, but they are of their time. And I'm no doubt, uh, Matt, that if we'd been born 300, 400 years ago, we might have done things, depending on where we were in society, we'd have done things that we wouldn't have done today. They are of their time. It's as simple as that. So when you see Labour using the Union Jack... For the first time, it feels like since Gordon Brown was Prime Minister and, and you see Keir Starmer, that I watched last year's Labour conference for the first time since Labour were last in office, I thought Keir Starmer is someone who looks like a Prime Minister, feels like someone who's already running the country and you may disagree on that. But when you see them effectively regaining their senses to some extent, do you perceive them as a bigger threat than they were five years ago? It's, it's, it's a difficult one to answer because I take on board what you say about Sakia. Um, but when you when you actually move him to one side on that front bench and look what's either side and behind him, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. When when Blair got elected in '97, he had quite a few things going for him. He had, he had lots of charisma. Women liked him because of the way he looked. Um, they thought he was sex. Well, they did. Um, he He's had, a good-looking fella. Yeah, good-looking bloke. Uh, he had some decent policies. Well, well I'll say decent policies. He had attractive policies. Minimum wage, you know, doubled wages in Ashfield overnight for a lot of people. So that was worth voting for for a lot of people. And what he also had, Matt, which people tend to forget, he has a giant of a shadow cabinet ready to move into these positions. You can see your Jack Straws, your Alistair Darlings, your Gordon Browns, your, you know, whoever, moving straight into these positions of, 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 of high office and doing a good job. But with Sakia, you look at his back, you look at his front bench, and you think, well, really? West Streeting? Well, here's West Streeting. You've got West Streeting on one hand wanting to privatise the NHS. Meanwhile, half his mates are on picket lines. Work that one out, Matt. You mentioned Alistair Darling there, and um, I'm very lucky to know him, and, and it's just so sad that he's dead. I mean, I wonder if it's often at moments of passing and things that you, you might reflect on your time in labour or whatever, but do, do you... You sort of have still a fondness for, for elements of of Labour. Well, that's, um, let me put it, let me put it in a, in in plain English uh, how it was for me with the Labour Party. It was an abusive relationship. Okay, so the thing I found out about the, the difference between the Labour and the Tory Party. This is it. So you you're in a Labour group meeting or or whatever a campaign meeting. If you fall out with somebody over a, an issue, like maybe a social policy issue, it might be a national issue or immigration or whatever, if you fall out with that person, normally they're not talking to you ever again. That's it. They're done. It's spiteful. It's, 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 there's no debates. That's it. You're done. You're finished. I'm not speaking to you ever again. 
in the Conservative Party, if you might fall out with somebody of difference of opinion, but at the end of the day, you'll go for a point. And that's it. That's a simple analogy. And trust me, Matt, it was like that for me. Once you'd had a crosswords of momentum, Bob, that was it. They was on your case until they drove you out. Where the Tory party, is got, yeah, they might disagree. Um, but they might even talk about you behind your back. I don't know. But they will be decent, respectful, uh, buy your drink if you see them at the bar. Uh, and that's the difference. There's this deep-rooted, I don't know what the word is to describe this within the Labour Party, where I've seen two Labour Party members today in, in Sutton, and I said hello to them, they just snarled at me straight away. You won't even talk to me now. When I was in the Labour Party, if I'd have said to Ben Bradley or one of the Tory members locally, hey, what mate, how you doing? They'd have stopped and had a chat with me. And that's how it should be. Um, but for some reason, they can't be like that. Um, even in, in Westminster, half the Labour MPs all look away when I speak to them. And then I went on a trip last year, on my first select committee trip to uh, Uruguay. And a couple of Labour MPs on there, I won't name them, but I sat with them on the aeroplane. And by the end of the trip, they went, you're all right, aren't you? We quite like you. You're not like you, you we see you on TV or... I said, yeah, because that's who I am. You know, politics is one thing. The person sometimes is, is somebody different. Sometimes the two are the same and they, and they cross over. But I didn't come into politics to upset everybody or, you know, be, be nasty and horrible. I came in because I wanted Ashfield to be a better place. Lee, I mean, it, it, it's a great, great... Um thought to end on but just as a final final thing to end on i guess it's the biggest question facing the country do you think forest will stay in the premier league this season well this is the problem um i think it was, it was right to get rid of steve cooper because i think he'd run out of ideas although he'll always be a legend in in in, in my heart and i thank him for everything he's done um some of the referee decisions have been awful the vod just um this voice we should have we should have beat Newcastle last week. We should have gone three two up. Been a completely different game. <clears throat> I think we've got a squad of players now that's capable of competing mid table to even creep up towards top six. When we attack with pace, uh, we are absolutely brilliant to watch. I mean, I'm going back to the Collymore days and Brian Roy, probably before you were born, Matt. No, no, uh, that was that was like my heyday. I was born in eighty two, yeah. so that was like yeah, yeah. So I mean, that was that first season we came back up. I had a season oh, ticket in the eight. And um, Stan Collymore was, for me, the best football I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. He could have been one of the world's greats. But to answer your question, I think we will stay up. Um, but we're going to struggle to keep some of the players. I mean, looking at Murillo, he's like, he's a £50 million player now, he is. Yeah. He really is. Uh, yeah. He's a different class, but we just need some. We just need a goalkeeper who can st <laughs> keep a clean sheet. You know, once every five games will do. <laughs> Lee, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very right. much. Yeah, buddy. Well, there you go, Lee Anderson. And, and the, I mean, obviously, we've been forced to, not been forced to think about it, but we've all, like, I guess, those of us really fascinated and obsessed with politics. When you think about what happened, where areas the epicentre of the miners' strike, areas like Mansfield and Ashfield, voting Conservative in, in elections in 2017 and 2019, um, and what really happened there, it, it, it wasn't just about Brexit. There, there, were, there were undercurrents there that were coming for a long time, and it was about the direction of the Labour Party, but it's not that... I don't think it's that people's politics necessarily change from election to election, uh, and obviously including in places like that. It is... Um, 
parties can repel people. And, and it's not that Lee Anderson's politics have changed necessarily. It's that in his life, the, th- the values that he has stood for have stayed the same. It's just political parties at different points have, have moved um, uh, to the point where, with the Labour Party, for him and for many people, obviously, they, they weren't Labour anymore. What is, in a way, more interesting is not just that this was someone prepared to vote Conservative, this was someone then um, who, who then went even further and became an elected uh, Conservative representative, not just on his local council, but in Parliament, and then has become, frankly, a star of the modern Tory party. So... Um, it was great uh, fun uh, talking to Lee, and I'm sure I'll see him at a, a, a Forest match at some point in the future. And I, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, it's good to be uh, back. I've got some fantastic guests lined up, um, as, of course, now we are in an election year, which uh, is a great thing to return to and a great thing to enjoy. So it's good to be back. Um, we've got some more episodes on the way. Do you know what? I'm so out of practice with this, I actually don't know how to end. So I will just stop speaking, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra! Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to $200 in fee-free overdraft with a Chime checking account. Sign up today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.